To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this I have, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would, uh, by your spirit, be with us this morning and this afternoon as we approach your word uh, with reverence. Pray that you would show us your son in this text, and I pray that you would change us by what we see. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, I'm uh, a student at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and one of the friends I have at TED's, as we call it, his name is Parker. Parker's about 230 pounds. Uh, He's a division, or was a Division I wrestler in college, and he's probably one of the nicest guys I've met at school, right? Yet, I have, a, you know, I have a passive interest in, in wrestling. I have a slight interest in wrestling. And so uh, the way I've described my relationship, my friendship with Parker, is that there's a split second between me standing and me being slammed into the earth as I try to wrestle with him. Well, in today's passage, I think we have a very similar thing, right, or a similar feeling maybe that the Ephesian church got, Uh, as they were maybe hearing this letter written to them, right? At the beginning of this letter, you see that Jesus commends the church, and then you see that Christ rebukes the church, and then again you see that he commends the church again. In today's passage, we have the first of seven letters to seven churches. And in this letter, again, we see two things, a commendation and a rebuke. So on the one hand, God commends the Ephesian church for hatred, and on the other hand, he rebukes them for a loss of love. So my sermon has two points. Uh, My first point is this. Orthodox Christians should hate false teaching. Orthodox Christians should hate false teaching. Remember, if we think back to the definition of orthodoxy that I offered before the service, or before the passage was read, it's, part of it is rejecting what's false. And then my second point is that orthodoxy requires we listen to Jesus. Orthodoxy requires that we listen to Jesus. Well, point one, I think that we see something contrary 
uh, to our cultural sensibilities in this passage, right? My own cultural sensibilities growing up in Chicago, coming of age in the Twin Cities. I'm very used, or living in Bellingham for a month and a half now, I'm very used to hearing slogans like love is love and love not hate or love conquers hate. These are all cultural slogans that we hear with varying degrees of truth and helpfulness. So when I read in verse 6, and this is Jesus speaking, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. My cultural sensibilities are made a little bit uncomfortable. Not only do we see that the Ephesian church is uh, commended for testing these false apostles, but we also see that they're commended for hating the works of these false apostles. In addition to that, Jesus, who's the Son of God, who took on flesh for the love of the world, is claiming to hate. So consider again point one, Orthodox Christians should hate false teaching. I want to help us grasp this by way of a question, and then I'll try to answer that question in two sub-points of my first point. The question is this, what does it mean for believers to hate in a way that imitates God's hatred? What does it mean for believers to hate in a way that imitates God's hatred? I think that this question in itself assumes that there's a right way and there's a wrong way. So I'll answer in two ways. First, I'll focus on the object of our hatred. Second, I'll focus on the method of our hatred. Or in other words, I'll focus on the what and then the how. The object of our hatred. The church of Ephesus had a high degree of theological acumen. Right, If they were alive today, I think that they would have been very familiar with writers like Bavink and Calvin and others, Right, people that many of us are very familiar with. Paul himself wrote to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. In fact, Paul describes how the Lord gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, shepherds, that the church might resist being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's from Ephesians 4. The Ephesian church was a church which knew the warning against false teaching. Not only that, they were faithful to the commandments of separating themselves from false teachers. So what's the object of our hatred? The simple answer, I think, is found in verse 6. Right, if you remember, Jesus says, You hate the the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. On multiple occasions, as I was preparing for this sermon, people have asked me, who do you think the Nicolaitans are? And while I think that that's a question best left for another sermon in chapter two or three where they're brought up again, I do think it's important to recognize just a few things about what they were doing, what they were teaching. The Nicolaitans were a group of false teachers whose teaching commended idolatry and sexual immorality. In other words, any teaching which tells you to love what God hates is idolatry, according to this passage, and God hates it. God hates false teaching. 
So to answer the first part of the question, right, the question being, what does it mean for believers to hate in a way that imitates God's hatred? Well, the object is false teaching. We hate false teaching. Notice that the passage doesn't say God hates the Nicolaitans. It says he hates their works. Now I want to talk about the method of our hatred. Or in other words, how do we hate false teaching in a way that imitates Jesus? And I think we find the model in the Ephesian church. They rightly saw it as their responsibility to guard the teachings of Christ delivered through his apostles, right? Look again at verse 2, where Jesus describes the work of the Ephesian church. He says, I know your works, your toil and patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, one idea um, I don't want us to get in our heads about this idea of love and hate is what maybe, again, what I mentioned in kind of pop culture, which is that love and hate are primarily emotional dispositions. No, I think that in the ancient world, hatred is not first an emotional disposition. Love is not first an emotional disposition. Rather, as one commentator describes it, it has to do with loyalty and attachment to a particular group or person. So for the Ephesian church uh, to rightly hate the works of these false apostles, they cast out the false apostles. Right? In fact, if you think about how I said God doesn't hate the Nicolaitans, it says he hates their works, this act of judicial hatred is actually an act of love. Right? First... First, it's love for those who are being led astray, right? But second, it's because the purpose of excommunication is that so the person who's sent out, right, can, can repent and return, right? God's intention for the Ephesian church is to detach from the Nicolaitans in an act of judicial separation. In a sinful world, true love at times demands hatred, and I'll again I'll show you how. In the Gospels, Jesus consistently opposed those wicked leaders and authorities who were set in place by God to shepherd God's people. Peter Lightheart puts it this way, Jesus fights with the Jewish leaders again and again. He would not be the love of God toward the oppressed if he did not oppose the oppressor. Neither can we truly love the good without hating evil. So, orthodoxy demands hatred. So what does this mean for us? How do we identify and reject false teachers? Uh, the first thing I'd say is what we find in verse 2, right? We test them. We consider what they say in light of Scripture, and we respond accordingly. I think about Matt Boffey, who recently passed his ordination exams. And when I first met Matt uh, on mid-May-ish, uh, I came into the office, and I saw that he, uh, you know, for a man in his early 30s, had a lot of uh, lines on his brow. He was clearly very stressed, right, because of the seriousness of the exams he was about to endure, right? It's no, it's no joke, uh, to be examined by a lot of those guys, right? And this, I think, is precisely what Paul has commended the church in Ephesus for. 
right? In verse 2, John says that they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false, right? So there's a type of false teacher who we discern is a false teacher by their teaching, right? Are their teachings faithful to the gospel delivered to us by the apostles or are they not? And it, you know, if you know what else that means, if you want to test the teaching of those who teach, even as you listen to them teach, right, you need to know God's word. Just by way of example, in Deuteronomy 13, it says that if a prophet says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet shall be put to death. Right, so even here again we see that idea of loyalty to one party over another, right? Faithfulness to God demands in the case of Old Testament law, the putting to death of the false prophet, right? I think that what this shows us and what it taught Israel, right, was that this is a foretaste of the judgment to come. And the New Testament fulfillment of this is an excommunication, right? Where if you, don't, if you are excommunicated and you do not repent of your sin, it's a foretaste of what God will do in final judgment. Another way we can discern false teaching uh, we find from John the Baptist in the Gospels. John instructs us that we know a false teacher by their works, right? So there's a, a type of false teacher who may be perfectly orthodox in all of the things that he does and teaches, but if he lives a life of consistent and unrepentant rebellion, we can declare that he's a false teacher, so to conclude our two subpoints, orthodox on the first point orthodox Christians should hate false teaching. Well, first, we know that we hate false teaching as the object, and second, we cast out this is the how we are to cast out and rebuke false teachers in an act of judicial hatred. Right there are many examples even today of ministers who uh, Certain things have come to light, right, that these uh, men have been unfaithful in, in very serious ways. And I think that the, the Christian answer to how we, do, how we deal with these people when they're in our midst is we cast them out. Right, I know it's an, it's, an icky, it's an icky thing, right? It's not a fun thing to talk about, but it's what Revelation 2 is talking about. Well, like many of us appreciate, uh, Jesus is a a very uh, loving critic, right? He doesn't begin with a harsh rebuke. Instead, he begins with a commendation. So I imagine, as this verse was being read, the Ephesian church was probably thinking, right around verse 3, we're doing pretty good, right? Yes, brother, we have toiled. We have endured patiently. We don't tolerate false teachers. In fact, we excommunicated just like you asked in your letter that you sent to us earlier. Right? That is until they reach verse 4 and 5 where John says, but this I have against you. But, but I have this against you. 
Right? I imagine stomachs would drop in the Ephesian church when they hear that. They begin to get very nervous. And then he says that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place, unless you repent. So what's the second part of being inside the Orthodox faith? The second part of what is called orthodoxy, I think, is listening to the Lord and believing what he says. Right here we see that Jesus is rebuking the Ephesian church. At the same time, verse 1 describes Jesus as one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And I think that this word picture is meant to communicate a lot of things to us, one of which is intimacy of relationship. Right? Jesus does not rebuke the Ephesian church as though they're some sort of distant enemy far off. He actually rebukes them as one who he uh, communes with. Others, um, you know, as I was studying this passage, trying to figure out what it was saying, I was trying to figure out what does it mean to leave your first love, right? What does uh, John mean? What does Jesus mean when he says you've left the love you had at first? And some say that what this means is that they've left love for God, right? But I don't think that that's the case because in verse 3, Christ has just commended the Ephesian church for enduring patiently for his namesake, right? It doesn't seem to be the case that the thrust of Jesus' rebuke is that the Ephesian church has lost their love for God. Others have said that what this means is that the Ephesian church has stopped loving their neighbor, right? Or they've stopped being a witness to the love of Christ in the world. And while this may be true, I don't necessarily see it in the text. But here's what I do see. In verse 7, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think that what Jesus is arguing in this letter, he's not even arguing it. He's stating it boldly, right? If you remember, verse 1 talks about how he walks amongst the golden lampstands. Another thing that communicates is Christ's authority as the one who created all things to simply say, right? If I were to correct you, I might couch it in all sorts of, you know, but I'm green, I'm young, I'm fresh, like, don't listen to me. But here's what I think. Jesus is not that way, right? He uh, rebukes confidently. And I think that his problem is that the Ephesian church's problem is that they've become so wrapped up in rebuking false teaching and hating false teaching that they've left their first love. They've stopped listening to Jesus, right? So often in Christ's ministry, he was telling those who followed him to listen to him. Think about Mark 4 in the parable of the sower, right? Jesus uh, reiterates this very command. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Right, I think a, a better way to put it might be, he who has an ear, hear. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Right, this phrase, he who has an ear, I think is meant to be ironic. Right, He who has an ear. I think that that's most of us. And if you don't have ears, then certainly you understand what ears look like. Right, What I think uh, uh, another way to put it would be to say, he who has an ear, listen. Right? Because listening conveys both 
hearing, but also trust in obedience. Right, if you have children, I think that you can understand this distinction. Right, I'm sure that many of you have at some time or another asked one of your kids, hey, can you go clean your room? Or you've told them, hey, go clean your room. And of course you know that they heard you because they're two feet from you and you were yelling, right? So of course they heard you, but at the same time, they've not taken it to heart. So remember then that Revelation 1.3 says that blessed is the one, sorry, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. So let me ask you this. Do you listen to Jesus? Right? And I don't mean that in some weird ethereal way where you're alone in your prayer closet and Jesus is talking to you. I mean, do you trust his word? Right? Do you hear what he says in his word and do you trust it? Some of us here even may feel as though our faith is slipping, right? Or others may feel as though it's gone cold altogether. And some may even say that you feel like you're doing perfectly fine in the Christian life. Well, regardless of how you feel, what Christ himself wants from you is for you to listen to him and to trust him, right? To believe what he says. So what's the second part of being inside the Orthodox faith? The second part of what's called orthodoxy is listening to the Lord and believing his word. I'll conclude with these two promises from this passage. The first promise, I think, actually corresponds to what the Ephesian church has done with these false teachers, right? They've removed them from their presence. And I think here what God is teaching us is that if we don't listen to Jesus, he will remove his presence from us. That's why verse 5, I think, says... Um, that if they do not repent, Jesus will remove their lampstands from its place, right? Some of us here have at one time or another been part of a church or a group of Christians who've begun to elevate certain theological or political or social or pet issues to the point of idolatry, right? And we know that the tragedy that that is. At the same time, so often we're concerned with someone else's theological orthodoxy that we forget to listen to Jesus, just like the Ephesian church, right? Or maybe you're not a Christian at all. Maybe you'd say, well, this is a letter to a church. I'm not really a church goer. I don't believe in God or I don't believe in the Bible. And so I don't know that this letter really applies to me. I don't see how it can apply to me. But I'd say even if you're not a Christian, right, we can all acknowledge that we have our pet issues, that when we see someone transgress a certain theological or social or political idea or, or practice, we tunnel vision, right, and we forget to listen. The second promise is the promise which I think is far easier for me to hear, and that's in verse 7. It says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here's the promise, I think, to those of you who hear Jesus, to those of you who listen to Jesus, he loves you and has freed you from your sins by his blood. Therefore, therefore, let us hate what is evil, let us hate false teaching, 
and let us listen to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being a God who's, who's not like us. Uh, when we have offended you in our sin and rebellion, you've instead of um, immediately judging us, have sent your son on our behalf. And so I ask that you would help us to listen to you, to help us to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Pray that you would shape us even this day. In Jesus' name.